Greetings to my lovely audience. My name is Sylvan. I use he, him pronouns, and welcome back to LGBTQSU. I don't know about you guys, but I am actually feeling absolutely delightful right now. Um, I've actually been dealing with some medical and personal things, um, and they're actually, it's going well. Um, you know, things are going well, my treatment's fine, and I'm feeling very good today. I'm feeling very productive, so that's honestly freaking phenomenal going into finals preparation. Because uh, I don't know about anybody out there, but I have officially entered the finals grind. I don't know if that's like a term that other people have like already used or thought of, but I'm using it. <laughs> um, you know, I actually like uh, for anybody that knows me personally, you know that I am usually an incredibly unorganized person and I am so prone to procrastination. So I'm actually incredibly proud of myself right now because last night I like scheduled like I went through my entire week hour to hour and figured out all the times that I have to work on my finals. And I did all the math to figure out how long I need for each final. Um, Cause I actually only have one in-person final. The rest of them are papers, which is very nice. Cause it means that I should be able to get home, to go home early. So that's always fun. Uh, but yeah, I've officially started that grind. I, I'm going to be so busy this week, but I am also pre-recording a bunch of these podcasts um, because I have figured out the issue regarding break. Um, I am going to be able to upload over the break, and I have determined it will be every other week over break so that I don't, you know, like, die trying to pre-record all these episodes while still having to do all my finals. Because, of course, I love this podcast and I love you all, but my studies come first, seeing as if I'm not attending this college, I can't do the podcast anyway. <laughs> uh, so that's that's been a really big focus, um, is making sure that I get all my finals done. Uh, and I should be good, you know, I'm feeling very productive, and like I said, you know, my treatments and the things going on in my personal life are going very well, so I'm very excited about that. Um, you know, good luck to anybody else out there studying for finals, or if anybody has their finals this week, best of luck to you, you're, I'm sure you're going to do great. Um, and anybody else that doesn't have to do finals, lucky you. <laughs> Ugh, yeah, I, I wish, but, you know, it's part of college, but, uh, yeah, so that's, that's how I'm doing, but... Anyway, enough about me. Let's get into the topic of the episode. So today's episode is about LGBTQ American history. And for the record, I will be going to other countries and like other people's other cultures histories in the future. Just for this episode, focusing on American history. And also, I'm not going to be going super, super in depth into anything in particular, just giving an overview. Um, and I also am going to be using a specific timeline from GSafe. Uh, this timeline was adapted and updated from multiple trusted sources. Um, it was adapted from, I believe, a book, like certain things in it, and then a couple other sources that the book used, as well as just separate sources that the timeline pulled from. Uh, some of those sources are like PBS and Lambda Legal. Um, the full source will be linked on the Instagram page, which is at Sylvan under, underscore WQSU, for anyone who hasn't gotten that yet. Um, you know, go make sure to check that out. It's pretty cool. And I'm going to be doing some fun things there over break, so stay tuned for that. Um, but I will be linking the source there for anybody to look at it because it is actually, it is an incredibly in-depth timeline. Like, it doesn't go super specific into anything there, but it, it is, like, it has so many different things from all across history. Um, and it's incredibly interesting. And I'm not going to be going into everything today. Um, and what I am going into, I'm going to be glimpsing over. Um, so this is something you're interested in. I highly recommend reading this for yourself because it's really cool and it has a lot of different things and also has resources to go look into for further reading. So it's it's really cool, which is part of why I picked it. 
Um, so anyway, without further ado, let's get into it. So we are starting all the way back in 1624, when a man named Richard Cornish was executed in Virginia for alleged homosexual acts with a servant. So, of course, most people already know this, but just as like a preface, uh, you th we, we've made a lot of progress nowadays, um, all things considered, and we still know that today we have a lot of work to be done. Imagine how this was 400 years ago. You know, um, sodomy laws at the time, which is why he was executed, um, sodomy laws were very common. The modern definition of sodomy today is towing the line for appropriateness on a podcast that is school sponsored. So I will not be sharing the modern definition. Of course, you know, Google is free, so you can go do that yourself if you would like. But sodomy laws back in the day were laws banning same sex sex acts. Because um, the colonies, when we first got, you know, when, you know, Europeans first got here and started colonizing everything, um, they were very. They were trying to control the sex life of all the settlers, along with other things, just because of purity and religion at the time. So sodomy laws were quite common all across the United States, wherever the Europeans settled. Um, so yeah, Richard Cornish was executed for these sodomy laws um, because most of them, uh, the the like sodomy was punishable by death. So there was a lot of hanging and like hangings. And actually, originally, sodomy laws were really just about se same-sex acts between two between men until 1636 in Massachusetts when acts between women were added to the definition. So at this point, both gay men and lesbians could be executed for being caught performing same-sex sexual acts. Um, punishment of sodomy continues throughout history. And, you know, as I mentioned, this timeline is very thorough and I only have a half hour, so I don't want to share everything but it did continue. That was just the first one recorded. Um, and moving on from sodomy, for anyone needing evidence that transgender people and crossdressers aren't a new thing, the first instance recorded in the Americas by Europeans, not natives, is in 1652. Uh, Joseph Davis in New Hampshire was fined for wearing women's clothes and forced to reveal this to the whole community, which, as you can guess, did not go very well. There's actually many instances here in the timeline and outside of the timeline of people cross-dressing, uh, which for those who are unfamiliar with the term, it's dressing in the traditional clothing of another gender. So throughout history, there's lots of instances of cross-dressing, and there's always been debate as to whether many of these people were actually trans and lacked the, the language or the terminology to know that, or whether they were just cross-dressing. Um, especially in the case of women cross-dressing as men, there was a lot of there's a lot of debate as to whether the women were trying to just get better treatment because of the treatment of women at the time, or in order to fight in the war, such as in 1782 when Deborah Sampson disguised herself as Robert Shirtliff and enlisted in the Continental Army. This was actually quite common. Um, Deborah is one of many women that did this in both the Continental Army and many other armies and many other wars throughout history. Um, and that it was, uh, there is also debate there whether it was just to enlist or whether it was also a gender issue. Um, many people do assume that it wasn't really a gender issue at the time, but of course, for many of these people, we'll never know. There are many people throughout history that were crossed or seen as cross dressers, but looking at a lot of their language and how, like, some of them insisted on being referred to as that gender, not the one they were born as. Um, so a lot of people will assume that those people were really transgender, but there's really a lot of debate and we will really never know for sure. Um, but anyway, moving on from that, 
the Europeans in America were not the only ones engaging in queer behavior. And in fact, quite the opposite. Uh, the concept of two-spirit was present in Native culture long before the colonizers got here. So two-spirit is not exactly a synonym for transgender in Native culture. There is some differences, which as a non-Native person that has not looked incredibly in-depth into two-spirit, I don't want to share too much for like out of fear of getting something wrong. But from what I understand, the concept of two-spirit is that there are two spirits within you of two different genders or you were born as one you were born presenting as one gender but the spirit inside you is is of a different gender and two-spirit people were actually quite revered in native culture um and they viewed it as an honor to be two-spirit a lot of the time um and also in native culture it was very common for women to hold leadership positions such as woman chief uh there are no other names listed there in the timeline for this woman chief so my apologies if you do know her name and I am being disrespectful, I do very I do very much apologize. There's just not any name listed. Um, but this woman chief was killed in 1856 on a peacemaking expedition and left behind four wives. Um, Same-sex partnerships were, um, I don't know how common they were in Native culture across the country, but it did happen quite frequently um, from what I understand. Um, it of course wasn't the most popular thing or like it didn't dominate over uh, opposite sex partnerships, but they did happen. Um, and also shortly after this, like shortly after 1856, um, one of the first publicized homoerotic writings in America uh, came out in a new edition of Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass in 1860. Um, the publishing of homosexual content and transgender content has been very controversial throughout history. Um, and this was just one of the first publicized homoerotic writings. I'll be honest, for this next point, I don't have a transition for this. It's just really cool. In 1875, in San Francisco, um, Jean, or uh, I believe it's Jean Bonnet, leads an all-female gang of ex-prostitutes who swore off men and got by through theft and shoplifting. Bonnet was unfortunately murdered by a pimp while sleeping with her lover, Blanche Bunau. I just thought that was a really cool fact. Like, I just thought that was so interesting. But anyways, back to the poetry and the publishing of homosexual content. In 1882, the poet Oscar Wilde calls on Walt Whitman during a tour in New Jersey. For those who are unfamiliar, Oscar Wilde is a very popular and famous poet, and he is incredibly gay. So gay. If you, <laughs> it, is, it is honestly just shocking. And it's also incredibly vulgar a lot of his writing especially in some of his letters to other poets um and he is also one of those poets that was known to spend quite a lot of uh private time with other poets at the time which that were uh gay so do with that what you will but oscar wilde uh for anyone 18 plus go look into him it's it's honestly hysterical how like it, his writing is hysterical but it was not just men in our queer history uh, Jane Addams in 1889 founded the Whole House in Chicago with her, quote, devoted companion, Ellen Gates Starr. Uh, the Whole House in Chicago is a social reform settlement, and it is the first in the United States for queer rights, I believe. Um, and Jane Addams was a very popular and uh, active activist at the time, um, both for women's rights and just social reform. And... It also wasn't just among the lower class. Finally moving into 1907, a German pro-homosexual paper prints an anonymous, uh, 
quote, letter from Boston, which talks about the gay scene in Boston at the time and the high amount of homosexuals in the area. Additionally, this paper talks about how, quote, reliable homosexuals can name other gay people reaching into the upper classes and higher ups in government in Boston, New York, and Washington, D.C. Now, from what I read, these, uh, these, none of the names were really mentioned, nor was it double, like, nor was it verified. However, there is quite a bit of evidence that this, that there were higher up homosexuals in these, in these areas. Um, and unfortunately, even though we've moved quite a bit into the future, and well, not, you know, the future, but from 1600s, the anti-homosexuality laws did not stop back then. Um, the timeline doesn't mention this, but given my own knowledge of queer and general American history, I'm assuming that in the 1900s at this time, this is linked to World War I, uh, as this brought up homosexuality as a major topic of discussion once again. Um, and there was also a lot of social repression and then uh, like freeing of the self after World War I. Um, but anyway, in 1917, an immigration law mo was modified to ban, per quote, persons with abnormal sexual instincts from coming to the United States. Um, this was the beginning of immigration law issues with homosexuality. Um, and again, that was in 1917. But in 1924, Henry Gerber and six others founded the first known gay rights organization in the United States called Society for Human Rights in Chicago. And in the 1920s, the U.S. had a massive gay scene in major cities. I actually did a project on this in high school. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, in major cities and in other places, but mostly just major cities, um, there were lesbian speakeasies and drag balls where there were drag queens and cross-dressers and transgender people all over. And they were actually quite revered. And it, it was it's honestly really interesting because in the 1930s, there was another repression, which I will get more into in just a moment. Um, but in the 1920s, there was a lot of public discussion of gender and sexuality, partly inspired by the relief of the war ending and no longer f like trying to break away from the old generation's traditional conservativeness. Of course, it was still quite conservative compared to nowadays, but for the time, it was absolutely liberating for many, many people. And it wasn't just LGBTQ people that were feeling it, like even straight people at the time, like straight and cisgender people. There was It was in popular media a lot, but... I don't want to get I don't want to get super tied up into that. Um, so again, though, with the anti-gay laws in 1926, the Broadway performance of *The Captive*, a lesbian play, inspires a new ban on plays depicting sexual perversion, which remained a law until 1967. There was a lot of censorship attempted at the time because of the sudden just outburst of positivity and acceptance in the LGBTQ community there was there you know in response there was a lot of suppression and um, censorship and the captive I did not in this in the project that I did I did not read the whole thing but I did read a bit of it and the the content of the play itself is actually kind of questionable in regards to consent and other things like that but it did feature a lesbian relationship or at least uh, women loving women content um whether or not it was a relationship is questionable again because of the content but it was incredibly modern at the time because nothing had nothing had really come out like that but circling back to the higher up gays from about 30 years prior eleanor roosevelt begins writing to her lesbian lover lorena hickok as she moves into the white house in 1933 you heard it you heard it right 
Eleanor Roosevelt was not straight. Whether or not she actually liked her husband or men in general, I'm not actually sure, but she did have a lesbian lover and some of her letters were actually quite graphic, though most of them, from what I understand, were actually quite sweet, but um, you, you can't look at those letters and think, oh, they were just friends, which some historians like to say. No, they were not friends. Friends don't make out. <laughs> Women don't make out at the time. Um, so yeah, Eleanor Roosevelt was not straight. But now we begin to move into World War II, where thousands of homosexuals in Europe were sent to concentration camps. Yes, it was not just Jewish people that were targeted in the Holocaust. Gay, uh, gay people were very commonly targeted um, in Europe. However, in the United States, which, um, mostly due to the fact that America tried to stay out of World War II for a while, um, this actually sparks a huge growth in the LGBTQ community as gay men and lesbians make up a significant portion of the mass mobilization for the war effort. This does inspire recruiters to be trained to, you know, try to spot and eliminate gay men from the services, but it didn't really work. Mostly because a lot of them realized that if we get rid of all the gay people, suddenly our army is minuscule. Not minuscule, but you know. A, too big of a portion of the army and those serving f to help the war effort were gay, so they couldn't get rid of that. Um, this is not part of the timeline, but I have heard that um, in the Navy at the time there were efforts, like there were, they, they, they started a program where they hired people to go in and pretend to be gay in order to lure out and locate any gay people in the military. And they realized that a lot of people were applying for these positions and, you know, doing a lot of work, but weren't really turning up many gay people. And then they realized, hmm, we have basically invited gay people to go find other gay people and secretly have sex. And why did we not expect this to go wrong? <laughs> like, because just a lot of gay people just saw that as a great opportunity and didn't out the people that they found. So they, they kind of, they shut that down. <laughs> but gay men and lesbians were not the only ones in the spotlight at the time. In 1952, Christine Jorgensen publicizes her sexual reassignment surgery. She was the first visible transsexual in the media. Note, I use the term transsexual as that is, that is the term that she used at the time. It is a fairly outdated term and it is viewed as offensive for many transgender people to be called a transsexual. Um, so please look into the context and the history of this word and don't just go throwing it around. Um, but I did not want to misuse, like I, I don't want to misuse the term, but I also did not want to label Christine in a way that she did not label herself. Um, but this is also the first publicized sexual reassignment surgery, which is part of why, you know, the surgery is such a big thing for a lot of people because it was one of the first times like, it was one of the first ways that transgender people were publicized in the media was this surgery. Um, so after this, more anti-gay laws and policies roll in with President Eisenhower, who bans homosexuals from being hired to the federal government in 1953, which inspired many local and state governments across the country to do the same. In the same year, though, the first lesbian and gay publication in the U.S., one, is published. So this was, you know, the first publication, and it had various queer content. I'm not exactly sure specifically what the content was, as as I mentioned, the timeline isn't super in-depth with anything in particular, 
but I am interested in looking into that. I'm, pro- I'm going to probably look into that after I record this. Um, but in the 1950s, there were more lesbian rights movements as well, occurring in, with 1955, bringing the founding of Daughters of, I believe it's pronounced Bilitis or Bilitis, by Del Martin, Phyllis Lyon, or Leon, and six others in San Francisco. If you haven't noticed the trend here, it's mostly happening in major cities because major cities were more liberal, as you can probably see evidence nowadays as well. Um, So they held their first national lesbian convention in 1960, which I find fascinating. Uh, Illinois, actually, in the 1960s, became the first state to begin getting rid of sodomy laws, decriminalizing homosexual contact in 1962, because there, the the applicability or the enforcement of the sodomy laws was varied at this point throughout the United States, but they were not gone. They just weren't paid attention to as much as they were necessarily, depending on where you were. But they were finally starting to get rid of them in Illinois in 1962. And the 60s was actually a very forward-thinking time in many different aspects with like civil rights, women's rights, and LGBTQ rights with you know, the, the famous 1969 Stonewall Riots in Greenwich Village. Uh, Greenwich Village is actually, it was in, uh, Greenwich Village is a very familiar name for many gay people, as that's where the Stonewall Riots were. However, Greenwich Village was not only famous for the Stonewall Riots. It was a very pro-homosexual community at the time already. And two years prior to the famous riots, Greenwich Village already made public gay strides with the Oscar Wilde Memorial Bookshop, the first U.S. gay bookshop. Because, as I mentioned, Oscar Wilde was very gay and very out about it. So, of course, I do have to mention the Stonewall, six, the Stonewall riots of 1969, where transgender and gender nonconforming people, including Marsha P. Johnson, resist the routine bar raid by the police, igniting the start of the modern LGBT rights movement. Bar raids were quite popular at the time, um, just to try to locate gay bars and eliminate them, and there were a lot of attacks and a lot of people died at the time. And uh, for those who are unfamiliar with the Stonewall Riots, it is said that somebody threw a brick at the police. Many people believe it was Marsha P. Johnson, though there is actually, it is actually believed that she is not the one who threw the first brick. Um, But she was there, and she was very much involved. Um, So... The transgender and gender nonconforming people in the bar at the time were finally done with this persecution, this unnecessary violence against them, and fought back. And these riots lasted days, and it there was a lot of there was a lot of fighting, and a lot of people got arrested, and a lot of people were were hurt and killed. But it did spark the beginning of the modern LGBT rights movement. Of course, this does spark both positive and negative momentum, with Minnesota setting the precedent on banning same-sex marriage in 1972. Ironically enough, though, Minneapolis, Minnesota, becomes the first U.S. city to protect transgender rights in 1975 by adding them to various discrimination clauses. I just find that interesting, (laughs) because a lot of the time, people are, like, if somebody is homophobic, they're also transphobic, and vice versa, but there are actually, there is quite a significant portion of people that are only one or the other, and oftentimes it's due to cultural differences, um, such as I know in various Middle Eastern countries, um, being transgender is actually not viewed as a sin, but homosexuality is, just for an example. There's many other examples as well. But I just found that interesting, that it set a precedent for both, like, both pro and anti-LGBT within 
three years of each other. Um, but the 70s as well as the 60s were very a very busy time. Honestly, the 60s to the 90s, like 60s, 70s, and 80s, not the 90s, there was stuff going on, but we'll get into that. Um, but it was a very busy time for many different uh, civil rights movements, um, including Harvey Milk uh, is also making change for the country in the 1970s, fighting for gay rights. Unfortunately, in 1978, he was murdered in City Hall by one of the former city supervisors, I believe, um, Dan White, along with another mayor at the time. Um, he was he was the face of pro-LGBT movements, especially like gay rights movements. Um, he was he was an incredibly powerful activist, and there's various movies and documentaries and books written about him. So Harvey Milk, look into him, especially if you have a school project and need somebody interesting. So now we're moving into the 1980s, which brings about the AIDS epidemic. Um, so the HIV and AIDS epidemic was an incredibly lethal time for the LGBT community. Um, and it was also a source of homophobia for many, many people. Um, actually, you know, with the pandemic, a lot of people are bringing back some of the propaganda images that they would use of, of conservative people wearing masks in posters, proclaiming that, you know, AIDS is a gay disease and they don't want their family to catch it and gay people are awful and stay away from them. And AIDS was actually originally named Gay-Related Immune Deficiency or GRID, as it was originally believed to only affect gay men. But then many were shocked when women and children were soon diagnosed. Oftentimes the result, the reason this happened for women in particular was a result of closeted husbands going out and having unprotected sex with other men and coming home to their wives. Because as many of us already know, uh, sex education has always been a very controversial and suppressed education. Um, so at the time, really, protective, protective sex was only seen to really just be there to prevent pregnancy. So men were going out and having sex with other men because they didn't have to fear getting pregnant, but were spreading AIDS as a result, and then coming home to their wives and having sex with them, thus giving them HIV. And then if the woman became pregnant and delivered a child, she could also spread it to the children. Um, so that was, it was an incredibly deadly time for LGBT people, and many famous people did end up having AIDS and died from it, such as Freddie Mercury. Um, it was, you know, there was a lot of government, dis there was a lot of government influence on that as well because they knew that it was lethal to the LGBT community and purposefully didn't do anything in order to, not even necessarily completely eradicate LGBT people, but it's, if it was affecting another group of people, there would have been a lot more done about it, basically, is what I'm saying. Um, so there's there's just, there's just honestly just a lot that happens in the 80s, including more sodomy laws and the first National Coming Out Day. And in the interest of time, I don't want to get super in-depth with that. But again, look at the timeline. I will have it linked on the Instagram. And also just, you know, Google is very interesting. Google's a very good source for LGBT history just because it, you know, has access to a lot of different things. But anyway... Uh, the next major gay event is in 1996 when President Bill Clinton signs the Defense of Marriage Act denying, b denying federal benefits to same-sex spouses and allowing states to ignore same-sex marriages performed in other states. So at the time, same-sex marriages were technically happening. Most of them were illegal and under the table, but they were happening and 
sometimes they were managing to get benefits most of the time by having to fake the gender of your spouse. So the Defense of Marriage Act also allowed states to ignore same-sex marriages performed in other states. So let's say somebody had gotten married in Hawaii, which was one of the places where you could have a same-sex union, like a civil union, and then they traveled to Alabama. Alabama would legally be allowed to ignore that marriage and not view it as valid, um, which denied various benefits um, for spouses. Uh, 1998 brings two points of significance, with Tammy Baldwin becoming the first openly gay person to win election in Congress in Wisconsin, as well as the murder of Matthew Shepard over his sexuality. His death actually caused national outrage and inspired the play The Laramie Project, or The Laramie Project. I always pronounce that wrong, and I never forget. I, I never remember how to pronounce it. I always forget, no matter how many times people tell me. Um, but that's an incredibly powerful play. Um, if you ever get the chance to see it, you should go see it. Um, I have not seen it myself, but I have heard wonderful things. And if I ever get the chance, I will absolutely go see it. Um, so that is 1998. And that is the end of that century, bringing us to the 2000s, when Vermont becomes the first state in the country in 2000 to recognize same-sex civil unions, but does not define it as a marriage, because the Defense of Marriage Act still defines marriage as a legal union between a man and a woman. But Vermont is the first state to recognize these same-sex civil unions as kind of an equivalent and starts to give them rights. And moving further into the 2000s, in 2003, of course, a very important LGBT history moment, I was born. <laughs> but, of course, that's not the most important. In 2003, the Supreme Court rules sodomy laws are unconstitutional, which is an absolutely wonderful event and you know, eliminated the sodomy laws across the country. Also in 2003, Massachusetts rules banning same-sex marriage as unconstitutional, legalizing it the next year, and becoming the first state to officially legalize same-sex marriage, which honestly I was kind of surprised by. Not that Massachusetts is like the most conservative state in the country, like absolutely not, but I also wouldn't have expected that state. I would have expected like California or New York to have done it first, but it was Massachusetts. And this is actually where the timeline ends. There's a couple events after that, but they weren't, you know, super noteworthy, at least for this podcast. But the final LGBT history moment that I will share for today is in 2015, when same-sex marriage was legalized across the country on June 26th. Um, I, rem I remember that day. I, it, was, it was a really amazing day. And it made, it was, I was so happy to hear that. I was only 12 at the time, so it didn't really i mean of course it affected me personally but it didn't even affect me so much as other people in my life who are absolutely just at a loss for words and just so amazed and so happy that this happened and it was uh it was a very positive historical moment in american lgbtq history and lgbtq history across the uh, across the world um but of course that is an amazing moment but as we all know there is still a lot of work to be done and we can, we can still be proud of all of the progress that we have made without ignoring the progress that has still to be made. So that is a, is a crash course into LGBTQ American history. So I hope you guys learned something new today. I certainly did in my research. I didn't know a lot of these things happened. Um, I, I knew generally the progression of queer rights and queer acceptance was kind of shaky um, throughout history, but 
I didn't know a lot of this, so I do hope that you learned something new, and you know, maybe you learned something that you're interested in researching more. Um, again, I will be linking the source for this on the Instagram page, so totally go take a look at that. It's honestly, like, it is a, a very cool timeline, and I did not include a lot of information that was on there, so take a look at that. And that does bring us to the end of the episode. So I hope you guys have a wonderful day and a wonderful finals week and have a great time. Well, not a great time prepping for finals, but I hope that your prep for finals goes well and I wish you luck in that. So I will see you guys next week. Have a good one, everybody.